Nearly every Sunday, General Efrain Rios Mont addressed the Guatemalan populace via his Sunday sermons. During these speeches, the 55-year-old Mont extolled the virtues of responsibilidad, or intrapersonal responsibility. By the time Mont assumed power in the early 1980s, Guatemala had been in the throes of a bloody civil war for over 20 years. For two decades, the conservative government and military fought against various populist guerrillas in a ruthless battle over the Central American nation. However, Mont, a born-again Christian, suggested that it wasn't just politics responsible for tearing the country apart. Instead, there were three fundamental problems. Quote, a national lack of responsibility and respect for authority, an absolute lack of morality, and an inchoate sense of national identity. In one of his speeches, he implored his largely Catholic audience, the peace of Guatemala depends on you. As soon as you have peace in your heart, there will be peace in your house. And when there is peace in your house, there will be peace in society. The peace of Guatemala does not depend on arms. But while Mont preached a message of peace, his military henchmen suppressed and massacred ethnic and indigenous Guatemalans, Catholic priests, and religious aid workers. Anyone who spoke out against the human rights violations or was even suspected of being an enemy of the Mont government was a target. Just three months into his 17-month rule, Mont, who proclaimed salvation through family values, would be responsible for the deaths of more than 10,000 of his fellow country people. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're looking at post-World War II Central American and Caribbean dictators Rafael Trujillo of the Dominican Republic, Efrain Rios Mont of Guatemala, and Anastasio Somoza de Baile of Nicaragua. This week, we dive into Efrain Rios Mont. We'll explore how an early presidential defeat changed the course of Mont's life and how his eventual 1982 coup ultimately led him to oversee 17 of the bloodiest months in Guatemala's history. Next week, we'll examine Mont's twisted pseudo-religious rhetoric and put a human face to the atrocities he and his cohorts committed in the name of Christianity. We'll also explore how, despite this violence, he managed to remain a vital force in Guatemalan politics for decades after his reign. Coming up, we'll head to war-torn Guatemala. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Like most dictators we've discussed on this show, Efrain Rios Mont left a complicated legacy. To some, he was a divine savior who brought a measure of peace to Guatemala after decades of bloody turmoil. To most, he was a genocidal caudillo who oversaw the systemic murder of thousands of innocent people. He didn't just go after the myriad anti-government guerrilla organizations hiding in the jungles. He went after anyone who spoke out against the regime. Mont oversaw some of the bloodiest months of Guatemala's civil war. Although he wasn't ultimately responsible for the conflict itself. That indignity fell largely on the shoulders of another country and government altogether, the United States. In many respects, the United States was keeping up a long tradition of international interference in Guatemala. In 1524, Spanish conquistadors arrived and over time decimated the local Maya civilization. Whether by sword or disease, over the next decades, the great Maya peoples began falling to the Europeans. From the 1600s on, the indigenous Maya were relegated to the bottom tier of Guatemalan society. They were subjugated and forced to work back-breaking jobs, usually on coffee and fruit plantations, seldom receiving any compensation for their services. This systematic subjugation of the Maya reached its apex when Guatemala's dictator of the 1930s, Jorge Ubico, assumed power. Ubico was backed by the United States government, but more importantly, he was backed by Guatemala's biggest and most prosperous landowner, the United Fruit Company. As you may recall from our episodes on Cuban dictators Fulgencio Batista and Fidel Castro, United Fruit Company was an American conglomerate. It was instrumental in plundering resources across Latin America. Not only that, with backing from the U.S. government, the corporation was able to manipulate numerous Latin American governments. It helped create a plutocracy where a minuscule number of wealthy businessmen and interests controlled the vast majority of wealth and industry across an entire region. Guatemala was no exception, especially under Jorge Ubico, whose repressive authoritarian attitude towards the Maya workers made the UFC's work all the easier. In April of 1932, Ubico even passed legislation sanctioning violence against so-called insubordinate peasant and indigenous workers. Essentially, wealthy land-owning bosses in Guatemala, like the UFC, 
were free to beat, humiliate, and murder their employees if they needed to protect their goods and land. But even in plutocratic Guatemala, these measures could only carry Ubico so far. By 1944, left-leaning intellectuals and many in the middle class organized a large-scale protest movement. It culminated in a general strike across all manner of businesses, industry, and social services. Though Ubico attempted to suppress the movement with force and intimidation, his regime had run its course. Caving to the pressure and resistance, he was forced to resign in disgrace. As a result, Guatemala held its first national democratic election. The winner was a man named Juan Jose Arevalo. Arevalo sought to nationalize Guatemala's large-scale farms and create a more egalitarian society with access to education and decent-paying jobs. Some of his first orders of business included instituting a nationwide minimum wage and expanding voting rights to all. Not surprisingly, these basic human freedoms made him public enemy number one to Guatemala's wealthy landowners, the conservative upper echelons of the military, United Fruit, and the U.S. government. Despite resistance, the Arevalo administration did make some significant gains. However, it was his successor, a wealthy 37-year-old former military officer named Jacobo Arbenz, who really pushed Guatemala forward. Though he was born into a well-off family, Arbenz was politically liberal and played an instrumental role in both removing Jorge Ubico and establishing the new liberal government. Democratically elected in 1951, Arbenz took things further than Arevalo. His primary mandate was to shepherd Guatemala from a so-called banana republic dependent on foreign capital into a self-sufficient country with opportunities for everyone. First, he sought to improve and modernize the country's crumbling and often non-existent infrastructure. Next, he set out to reform Guatemala's completely unequal and undemocratic economy. Arbenz introduced extensive economic and social reforms, which included constructing factories, schools, hospitals, and other institutions. The initiative provided jobs and services for the vast majority of Guatemalans, including the indigenous Maya. Instead of limiting these opportunities to the Guatemalan 1%, everyone would benefit. Of course, in order for all of this to work, Arbenz needed to appropriate land from wealthy landowners. Only then could he redistribute in a more equal fashion. Land appropriation and redistribution is a popular theme here on Dictators, and one that often ends disastrously. In places like China and Russia, the redistribution led to large-scale famine and death because it was done incompetently. Under Arbenz, this 1952 policy actually worked. So much land was controlled by so few that even when territory was appropriated, the results were essentially negligible for the previous owners. Furthermore, indigenous groups already had farming experience thanks to being forced to work for companies like United Fruit. As a result, agricultural production actually increased after redistribution, and many people saw immediate benefits under the new system. 
Naturally though, not everyone was happy. Arbenz found a foe in United Fruit Company. Despite the fact that United Fruit only used 15% of the vast amounts of Guatemalan land it owned, it didn't like the idea of giving up an inch of its holdings. And unfortunately for Arbenz, United Fruit had friends within the U.S. government, which never liked a threat to American business. With the help of U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, who had done legal work for United Fruit and whose brother sat on the company's board, the UFC launched a massive lobbying campaign against Arbenz. But it wasn't just the threat against the most profitable American corporation that got the U.S. government's attention. Though Arbenz was a capitalist, he was sympathetic to a cause that struck fear into nearly all American politicians of the era. Communism. With China and North Korea succumbing to communism in the wake of World War II, many American politicians worried that it would spread to the Western Hemisphere. And they were terrified that if it got into South America, it could eventually infect the United States. So in 1954, the CIA decided to overthrow the benevolent, popular, competent, democratically elected president of Guatemala. It was called Operation PB Success. The U.S. chose Carlos Castillo Armas, a right-wing military officer, to lead the coup. At the same time, they instituted arms embargoes to prevent other countries from supplying the Arbenz government with weapons to defend itself. For roughly two weeks in June 1954, Guatemala saw small-scale fighting between the CIA, Guatemalan troops, and the Arbenz loyalists. Finally, on June 27, 1954, Arbenz resigned from office rather than die as a martyr. However, not content to simply overthrow a foreign leader, the CIA went to great lengths disseminating propaganda throughout Guatemala. They were determined to discredit Arbenz and his policies and to try and justify the coup in the first place. Jacobo Arbenz saw the writing on the wall. He left Guatemala and spent the rest of his life in exile, dying in 1970. Some reports said he died of a heart attack while others claimed he drowned in his bathtub. Back in Guatemala, newly installed Castillo Armas immediately set about reversing Arbenz's populist policies. He did his best to restore Guatemala to a plutocracy controlled by fruit companies and wealthy landowners. But for the upper class, the relief was short-lived. By 1960, groups of semi-organized revolutionaries and guerrilla fighters across the country began taking up arms against the government and the military. After the successful, populist-oriented Arevalo and Arbenz administrations, ordinary Guatemalans had no intention of returning to the days of military tyrants, whatever the CIA propaganda said. Buoyed by their desire for freedom and equality, they initiated a civil war that would become the longest in Central American history. It was in this climate of violence and mayhem that an army general named Efrain Rios Mont came of age. He would use the chaos to his advantage. And once in power, Mont would gaslight, murder, and oppress his country people 
on a level not seen since the Spanish conquistadors. Coming up, a stolen election sends Efrain Rios Mont down a path of terror and destruction. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath, from murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. In 1960, Guatemala plunged into a bloody and terrifying civil war. After the U.S.-backed coup of 1954, a string of violent, aggressive, and reactionary military leaders took charge of the country. The oppressed peoples decided to fight back. Meanwhile, Efrain Rios Montt was rising through the ranks of Guatemala's military. His desire to secure a position in the upper echelons not only highlighted his ambition, but made clear that his politics were decidedly anti-populist. This wasn't necessarily an ideology that Mont developed over time. In many ways, it was embedded into his psyche very purposefully. Like many dictators we've profiled on this show, Efrain Rios Mont was born into fairly inauspicious circumstances. His middle-class family lived on the outskirts of Huehuetenango, where his father ran a shop. Despite the success of the shop, the family wasn't part of Guatemala's elite. Thus, Mont was fairly limited when it came to choosing a career path. And although he wasn't destined to a life of hard labor like the indigenous Maya, there were really only two respectable options for any kind of life advancement, the military or the Catholic Church. He chose the military. As a soldier, the 16-year-old Mont quickly impressed his superiors, so much so that he earned admission to an officer's academy. After excelling in his studies, he graduated in 1949 at age 23 and began working his way up the chain of command. 
That process involved a stop at another military academy for further training, one that might sound familiar to Dictator's fans. The School of the Americas. If you recall from our episode on Argentina's dictator, Jorge Videla, the School of the Americas trained Latin American military officers in anti-communist counterinsurgency techniques. This became ever more important to the U.S. after the Cuban Revolution. Mont took those lessons back to the Guatemalan military and throughout the 1960s and into the 1970s continued to flourish as an officer. In 1970, Mont was named Army Chief of Staff to President Carlos Serrano Osorio and two years later was promoted to general. Carlos Arana Osorio was one of the many military strongmen who had seized power since the overthrow of Arbenz in 1954. And like his predecessors, Osorio's presidency was preoccupied with battling anti-government guerrillas. By 1972, the Guatemalan Civil War had been raging for 12 years. And with U.S. support, the Guatemalan government and military had been resoundingly successful in keeping the populist rebel guerrillas at bay. At this point, the rebels were simply a loose coalition of anti-authoritarian militants. As a general, Mont's central occupation was rooting out and destroying these militants. And thanks to the training he received at the School of the Americas, he wasn't afraid to take things a step further if he felt it was absolutely necessary. For example, on March 27, 1973, Mont personally ordered the massacre of a group of farmers who had attempted a hostile land takeover. Despite the moments of ruthlessness when it came to dealing with the guerrilla fighters, when it came to politics, Mont was initially less reactionary than many of his contemporaries. True, he was an anti-communist, but he was also more of a moderate when it came to policy. It's unclear if Mont always harbored a desire to enter into the political fray. Perhaps he was simply following tradition, considering how many generals he'd watched move into politics in the years since 1954. Or maybe he felt that the Civil War violence was getting out of control, and he really wanted to stop it. Regardless, in 1974, Mont decided to run for president against General Shell Laugarud, a much more extreme militant opponent. Unfortunately for Mont and the country at large, Laugarud enjoyed vastly more support from the military and the ruling elite. Mont actually won the popular vote. However, the powers that be installed Lao Garud into the presidency, likely under the assumption that Mont was not enough of a hardliner or willing to bend to their interests. Mont felt devastated and betrayed, but he decided not to contest the election results, fearing that it would plunge the country even deeper into crisis and alienate him from the military and political elite. However, the stolen election drastically affected Mont, and eventually he decided he needed to take a break from the military and Guatemala. Not long after the election, he went into exile in Spain. While Mont was out of the country, Guatemala was literally shaken to its core. On February 4th, 1976, 
a 7.5 magnitude earthquake rocked Chimaltenango, one of the largest cities in the country and the epicenter of the Civil War. Two days later, a 5.5 aftershock finished what its predecessor had begun. The natural disaster killed nearly 23,000 people, injured 70,000, and displaced more than a million. Only 33 miles away, the capital, Guatemala City, lay largely in ruins. The country's already insubstantial infrastructure was so badly damaged that the telephone system, water supply, and the electrical grid were plagued by problems for the next several years. But the damage to the country wasn't just physical. Like many natural disasters, the earthquake disproportionately affected Guatemala's poorest citizens. Many of them lost everything and were left without proper housing. Often they were forced to relocate to land that had little or no agricultural value. In the wake of the destruction and hardship, the government's response was anything but helpful, and many felt betrayed by the people in power. Which led to a sudden rise in support for the guerrilla and anti-government sentiment. The guerrilla groups throughout the country were growing. Meanwhile, American foreign aid agencies, the majority of which were faith-based, sensed an opportunity left by the earthquake. Many of these organizations were Protestant, and they offered economic relief, shelter, food, and touted key tenets of Protestantism, namely that their faith allowed for, quote, an unmediated personal relationship with God. This idea sat well with post-earthquake Guatemalans who were in need of this kind of spiritual intimacy that Catholicism didn't seem to offer. In deeply Catholic Guatemala, many believed that the earthquake was God's way of punishing the country for its deep division. Feeling spiritually betrayed, thousands of people converted to Protestantism, thinking it might unite the people in a way that Catholicism never could. And among those converts was none other than Ephraim Rios Mont. It's unclear whether Mont was in Spain or Guatemala, but in 1977, during his self-imposed exile from the military, he became a born-again Christian. And soon he became a member of an American Pentecostal church called the Church of the Word. The Church of the Word was originally based in California, However, after the earthquake, they moved their efforts, leadership, and congregants mainly to Guatemala. Those efforts largely involved proselytizing a conservative doctrine of morality, humility, and family values. These teachings were exactly what Mont was looking for. After feeling lost and confused about losing an election he really won, it made sense that what was missing in Guatemala was morality and family. He decided that needed to change. Only then could the Civil War stop. Unfortunately, the current president, Romeo Lucas Garcia, was anything but interested in family values and morality. After the shot in the arm that the earthquake provided the guerrillas, Garcia ramped up the state-sanctioned violence to levels that hadn't been seen since the reign of Jorge Ubico in the 30s and 40s. Garcia employed death squads, 
not only to attack and massacre guerrillas, but to infiltrate small towns and villages and slaughter anyone even suspected of sympathy for the rebel cause. But Garcia saved the worst of his wrath for indigenous protesters who condemned the government violence. As the 1980s began, one of the most infamous tragedies in modern Guatemalan history took place at the capital. The event was later dubbed the Spanish Embassy Fire. On January 31, 1980, members of the left-leaning Committee for Peasant Unity, or Cook, along with several college students, occupied the Spanish Embassy in Guatemala City. Although the Cook refused to release the embassy employees when pressed by law enforcement, the event was mostly symbolic. Spain was openly sympathetic to the indigenous cause in Guatemala, and the embassy personnel knew they weren't really being held hostage. The cook simply hoped to bring international attention to the human rights violations committed by Garcia and his death squads. Instead, Garcia chose to double down on those abuses. Garcia authorized the police to block all the doors and exits, trapping everyone inside including the hostages. Then, Garcia allowed the police to hurl firebombs and grenades inside the embassy. Only one fire truck was called, and when it arrived, it was discovered that its fire hose didn't fully work. Horrified crowds watched helplessly as flames consumed the embassy. In total, 36 people died, including embassy staff, diplomats, negotiators, and members of the cook. One cook member, Gregorio Yuha Sona, did manage to escape and was rushed to the hospital to treat his severe burns. Unfortunately, while at the hospital, masked assailants kidnapped Sona. Days later, his dead body was discovered on the campus of San Carlos University a clear message to anyone harboring ideas of government subversion. These events only galvanized the rebels, however. A few days after the fire, representatives from nearly every indigenous ethnic group and guerrilla organization united to deliver a stinging rebuke to their government, known as the Declaration of Ixim Che. As part of the declaration, they decried the embassy fire as the breaking point for, quote, more than four centuries of discrimination, negation, repression, exploitation, and massacres made by foreign invaders and continued unto the present day by their most savage criminal descendants. Those who weren't furious with the government after the earthquake certainly changed their minds after the embassy fire and redoubled their efforts to oust Garcia and the reactionary government. As a result, Garcia's administration stepped up their attacks against these so-called enemies. Throughout the end of 1981 and the beginning of 1982, the regime committed several massacres, one of which saw the summary execution of nearly 400 laborers and inhabitants of an agricultural cooperative. But this new round of violence didn't quite have the effect Garcia had hoped for. Not only did the violence alienate Garcia even more from the general populace, it started to make some within the upper echelons of the military question their president's tactics. 
Making matters even worse, the violence was sending the economy into a tailspin. Much of the money supporting Guatemala, like foreign investments, started to move abroad into less volatile countries. Naturally, tourism also evaporated. Meanwhile, the lucrative oil industry fell victim to the oil crisis of the 1970s. It appeared as if Guatemala was about to hit rock bottom. Which, of course, meant there was only one solution, another coup. It would be the ninth since Jacoba Arbenz's overthrow in 1954. On March 23, 1982, a military junta triumvirate seized the highest office in the land. Though the coup itself was bloodless, the conspirators were rumored to have captured Garcia's mother and sister and then have taken Garcia to see them with soldiers pointing rifles at their heads. With Garcia deposed, the new trio of leaders decided it was time to address the public. They chose the most charismatic member to speak, Efrain Rios Montt. Standing between his cohorts, General Horacio Maldonado Shad and Colonel Luis Gordillo Martinez, Montt proclaimed, I am trusting my lord and king that he shall guide me because only he gives and takes away authority. What no one could have known was that the guidance Mont supposedly was following would lead to arguably the bloodiest 17 months of Guatemala's history. Coming up, Efrain Rios Mont gives his junta cohorts the boot and seizes absolute power for himself. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, back to the story. On March 23, 1982, 55-year-old General Efrain Rios Montt and two other military officers led a successful military coup in Guatemala. After an increase in state-sanctioned violence and an economic downturn, Guatemala was ready for a change. And Montt was going to provide it. It's unclear when exactly Efrain Rios Montt began plotting the coup against Romeo Lucas Garcia with his co-conspirators. But what is known is that the military leaders supporting Montt believed he would be more of a figurehead than an actual leader, basically a vessel to carry out the bidding of the military and big business communities. Oh, how wrong they were. In his first run for the presidency, Mont hadn't distinguished himself as anything other than a talented military leader. After all, as a member of the middle class, it was virtually his only path forward in life. 
But after the stolen election and his eventual religious conversion, Mont had a new lease on life. Now he wanted to share his profound religious awakening with his fellow citizens and as a leader, inspire them to find God too. Unfortunately, Mont still harbored a deep distrust and hatred for anyone who didn't respect and obey the government. All things considered, Mont had no intention of behaving like anyone's figurehead. In fact, his so-called agenda was unlike anything that any Guatemalan leader had ever put forth. Almost immediately, Mont set about an initiative to create a Nueva Guatemala, or New Guatemala. His agenda consisted of transforming the country from the inside out. He called for Guatemalans to commit to a life of decency, modesty, and respect for authority. If they could accomplish these things, then somehow the country would turn itself around. According to historian Virginia Garrard Burnett, Mount's objective was to bring salvation to a country plagued by war, corruption, and poverty, and raise it to its destiny as the city on the hill. In Mont's view, the problems plaguing Guatemala were a result of Guatemalans turning away from God. They had all abandoned the moral, Christian lifestyle. According to Gerard Burnett, Mont believed this abandonment had led to the three fundamental problems tearing the country apart, including, quote, a national lack of responsibility and respect for authority, an absolute lack of morality, and an inchoate sense of national identity. While these may sound like platitudes, Mont actually seemed to believe in them. So much so that he began delivering weekly sermons, which were broadcast on the radio and television and then later published as transcripts. He was also keenly aware that after the chaos of the Garcia years, he needed to project an image of law, order, and competency. An image of a leader with a strong moral compass, one whom the public could trust and respect. The effort was working, enough so that he had the clout to force his two junta co-conspirators to step down and assume total control of the country for himself. Then he declared his independence from the military commanders, who assumed they were still calling the shots. To show his dedication to a new method of leadership, on March 24, 1982, he declared that there be no more cadavers on the roadside, and stopped the use of any and all military death squads. Three days later, Guatemala saw the first 24-hour period in months in which no dead bodies were discovered in the streets. A milestone celebrated with the grim front-page headline, No One Shot to Death Today. With a firm grip on power, Mont began sowing the seeds for his country's existential and quasi-religious journey into a peaceful, morally sound future. In doing so, he chose to reframe the narrative of the entire Guatemalan Civil War. He plastered the country with propaganda posters decrying the guerrillas as responsible for violence, subversion, and all the disparate problems plaguing the nation. On the flip side, he portrayed the Guatemalan government and army as the heroes, fighting for the country's salvation in the eyes of God and its citizens. 
He was also careful to portray himself not as a godlike figure, but as a messenger of the Lord. As a human, he was subject to crises of the soul, temptation, and sin. But if people simply followed his advice, then they, like him, could truly follow in God's footsteps. But at the same time, he also made it very clear that the guerrillas and anyone harboring anti-government beliefs were God's enemies. He characterized the guerrillas as traitors who had, quote, sold out their country and insisted that, quote, neither communism nor fascism have any understanding of the word peace nor the concept of love. He also scolded the parents of guerrillas for failing to teach their children the evils of communism and the value of personal and moral responsibility. Presumably, the responsibility to oppose communism. But Mont was also careful to express that he understood the appeal of the guerrillas, that their cause offered a sense of brotherhood and purpose to a group that had been oppressed for centuries. Even if they were subversives, doomed to spend eternity in the bowels of hell. To highlight the evil agenda of the guerrillas, Mont pasted wanted posters on every wall he could. These featured mugshots and criminal records of those who had joined guerrilla groups. He hoped this would dissuade others from joining them. At the same time, he juxtaposed their evil with photos and posters of happy families living their fullest potential in government-sanctioned camps and villages. He made sure to highlight that these villages were free from any negative influence or temptation. By making a sincere, if pompous and proselytizing attempt to engage with Guatemalans, Mont managed to actually distinguish himself from his predecessors. And unlike his predecessors, he was willing to criticize the Guatemalan government itself. He castigated recent Guatemalan leaders as having, quote, planted the seeds of death, corruption, kidnapping, hatred, extortion, all acts of ingratitude that have destroyed our own Guatemalan family. In eviscerating the very government which he ran, he made clear that Guatemalan leaders, from the president to the military to the police, had also fallen victim to the nefarious elements and ideals tearing the country apart. Now it was time for everyone to change together. Of course, that didn't mean Mont didn't resort to traditional methods of keeping people in line too. Even though he abandoned the use of death squads, almost immediately after assuming office, he passed a number of executive decrees allowing for the arrest and prosecution of suspected guerrillas. He also instituted a news blackout on any ongoing political violence occurring in the country. Instead, he likely supported, quote-unquote, happy news about the sweeping changes he brought to the country and his weekly sermons. Additionally, he continued the practice of using civilian militias to monitor communities by, for instance, breaking up strikes and settling disputes among landowners and their tenant farmers, a problem that had plagued Guatemala since the era of the conquistadors. However, Mont realized that even continuing this practice was simply perpetuating a centuries-long vicious cycle, and he knew that he needed to change tactics. 
So, on May 28, 1982, he declared a countrywide 30-day general amnesty to not only the guerrillas supporting the tenant farmers, but each and every guerrilla across the country. Meaning that if they surrendered, they wouldn't be prosecuted, imprisoned, or worse. Mont encouraged them to accept the amnesty, suggesting that they should fight not with violence, but with understanding. In offering amnesty, Mont was, on the surface, not only demonstrating his supposed dedication to deal peacefully with the rebels, he was distinguishing himself as a moral, benevolent leader, offering rebels salvation, a second chance. According to Mont, he that pardons is noble, and the person who accepts it is a noble person. We make our patria something noble. We reconcile. We make our family the root of the country. Not surprisingly, after so many years of violence, the promise of amnesty didn't attract many takers. They didn't trust it. In fact, it's estimated that only 250 people in the entire country accepted. But that was also part of Mont's plan. For Mont and the military, those who didn't accept amnesty were essentially declaring war and would be dealt with accordingly. In essence, it gave Mont carte blanche to go after them. After the month had expired, Mont turned his venom on the remaining rebels, declaring, Listen well, Guatemalans. We are going to combat the subversives by whatever means we want. Peace and respect for those who are peaceful and respect the law, but prison and death to those who plant the seeds of criminality, violence, and treachery. This speech would herald the next phase of Mont's presidential agenda, one he hadn't revealed to anyone up until this point. He was going to become the first Guatemalan leader to finally defeat and rid the country of all subversives by any means necessary. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore Mont's vicious attempts to bring the decades-long civil war to an end. Among the many sources we used, we found Terror in the Land of the Holy Spirit by Virginia Garrard Burnett extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Patel, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.